You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. Well, thank you, Joe, for those kind words. And uh, yeah, looking back, I just see the Lord being so gracious to me and discipling me and giving me a wonderful pastor to to disciple me. And um, it's just been a privilege to get to know all of you and worship with you every Sunday. And um, I'm just very thankful for this opportunity to be with you all, my brothers and sisters here, and you sing, seeing you smile. It's a wonderful privilege every Sunday. Um, in recent weeks, Pastor Joe has continued through the Gospel of Luke, and particularly in chapter 8, as it began, we heard of the different tendencies of the human heart in the parable of the sower. Some have indifferent hearts and are indifferent to the word of God. Um, and Satan comes after they've heard it and snatches it out of their hearts. It doesn't mean a whole lot to them and they fall away. As well, some are impulsive. They hear the word zealously and well, but they have no deep roots developed. They're tested and they fall away. And there's the preoccupied uh, heart, choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Uh, They fall away as well. But lastly, we have the changed heart. Beautiful and redeemed to live as God's child. Who receives the word, clings closely to it, and bears fruit in it with patience. The next Sunday, we worship with Second Baptist Church, and we heard from Joe a very timely message, particularly for them, uh, as they are in a time of grief and uncertainty of what's next and what's ahead. Um, Jesus, our Lord, calms a great storm. His disciples whimpered in fear and unbelief as the storm met them, while their Lord lay asleep in the boat, and uh, where they thought they would surely meet their demise. The disciples wake Jesus up, for they were afraid of perishing in the sea. And Jesus gets up, he rebukes the winds and the waves and the storm, and he rebukes his disciples and asks, where is your faith? Two Sundays ago, we're shown that the Jesus we have faith in moves toward a demon-possessed man who seemingly would never see freedom, let alone the Lord of glory before his very face. Jesus commands his cleansing and sends the demons away from his presence who know their demise. And finally, as Joe finished with chapter 8, a faith-filled woman is healed and a grieved father is restored fellowship with his daughter that he loves dearly. All of this by the hand of an all-compassionate, gracious Lord. So if you'll please open in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. I'll read those and pray for us. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons... And to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. 
And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, that is, John the Baptist, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. And on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up twelve baskets of broken pieces. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the grace and mercy that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord that you continually remind us that our thoughts are not your thoughts. Our ways are not your ways. You're higher than everything. You're more important, stronger, perfect in every way than we are, and yet you desire fellowship with us. We thank you for that, Lord, and I just pray that I get out of the way. Your word goes forth, and it helps all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. At the beginning of our passage, Jesus has just come away from raising Jairus' daughter to life, and he calls the twelve to him. These twelve have now been with him for some time, face to face, in fellowship in company with God in the flesh, right before them, day after day. They've had his ear in conversation. They've seen his works for others. They've touched his garments, much like the woman that we just heard about. They have walked closely by him, and so far as fallen man can, they've been attentive to his teaching. Now is coming a time when the rubber is going to meet the road and the disciples are going to be sent out to do a mission, work for Jesus. Two questions that need to be answered, I feel. Number one, what is the substance of the mission? And number two, what is the nature of the mission? 
Number one, what is the substance of the mission? What are they doing? What is it? Verse one, he calls the disciples and gives them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases and to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Again, what is the substance? It is to proclaim and cure. In Luke 3, John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus and calls whoever would hear to repentance and cleansing to go on and continue bearing fruit. The peoples were made aware that something was coming through John the Baptist. Whether they listen or not is on them, but they heard. And Jesus in Luke 4 stands in the synagogue and he quotes from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim the good news, to proclaim liberty to the captives and set at liberty the oppressed and the recovering of sight to the blind. Proclaim and cure. Proclaim the kingdom so as to make the people aware and cure so as to demonstrate the power of Yahweh our Lord and show that God will restore. The gospel will restore. The kingdom of God on earth as it manifests is accompanied by runners who race to the town square, jump up on the stocks, the fountains. They're in the guillotines and they're proclaiming that God is making his kingdom known to the fallen world, freeing the captives of sin, death, and lawlessness. The kingdom of God manifested in any silent whisper of the gospel. It is powerful. It can be spoken in a whisper and result and loud, gut-wrenching explosion of the wellspring of the soul that has been changed by the Spirit and convinced that God is with them. As well, of course, the kingdom of God is accompanied by healers. Not the faith-crushing swindlers and peddlers of lies who are seeking earthly gain and only gaining hellfire and wrath from God for lying and deceiving. I'm not talking about those healers. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about the children of God. The people who day in and day out give their lives to others to see them flourish and nurtured in the Lord. Who share the gospel, who invite for meals, who pray for God to intervene in others' lives and in their lives and make His presence clear to them. Take the blinders off their eyes to heal, to provide, to protect. These are the healers of the kingdom of God manifest. And I'll say there's a difference in the ministry that the disciples are embarking on, the apostles, and the ministry that we are on in terms of healing and the power of the Spirit, but you can talk to me afterwards about that. I could go on. But to bring it back to my point, the substance of the mission for the disciples is to proclaim and cure. Question two, what is the nature of the mission? Verses 3 through 6, Jesus said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And after this commissioning, okay, from Jesus, they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. What is the nature of the mission? It's to be prayerful and expectant. Prayerful in their preparations and provisions and expectant in their hearts to see God work. 
They are tasked by Jesus to take the least of what you have. No numbers need to be argued over here. It's not a competition of virtue. This, I believe, is a call to the disciples to do exactly what Jesus has tasked all of us. Consider the kingdom first, and all these things will be added to you. Namely, food, shelter, clothing, all provisions are up to the Lord. Again, no virtue here, just prayerful lives waiting on God to provide. And my second point, expectant, the disciples embark and wait to be received into a worthy home where they will stay and God will provide for them. And where they aren't received, they pronounce judgment and continue on with the kingdom work and they are expectant to see God provide. So the substance of this mission to proclaim and cure and the nature of this mission to be prayerful and expectant. With that said, we'll continue on. Verse 7, Herod the Tetrarch. Stop there for a second. Just so you're aware of the situation, Herod is a lot like the governor Pilate in some ways, who handed Jesus over to the wolves and hypocrites of Israel to be crucified. And what does he do, and why do I say that? Herod, right, sees a man that he fears, in some sense, that he believes is righteous. This would be John the Baptist. He's somebody from God. He may not see a threat to his power, but spiritually he sees something in this man that perplexes him. And for Pilate, it was Jesus. He knew this man was, he was innocent. He was just, but the world and its influences. Maybe they're the indifferent or divided heart that Pastor Joe talked about a few Sundays ago, but I won't speculate. Either way, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, detail that incident, and I'll let you go and read that on your own. I'll just sum it up. John the Baptist is perceived as a righteous man by Herod, like Pilate, who perceived Jesus, was also a man being unjustly judged, and he was amazed by him. And like Pilate, Herod gives in to disgusting and sinful influences, and he beheads John the Baptist. Though Pilate may wash his hands, and though Herod may try to justify his actions, no amount of blood has left either of their hands. This is Herod, corrupt and unjust. And verse 7 continues, Herod heard all that was happening, but he was perplexed because it was said by some that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. But no, this was not John the Baptist. Remember what John said, he being Jesus must increase, I must decrease. By some that Elijah appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen from the dead. No, not them. Little do they know of the resurrection to come. Verse 9, Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? Herod sought to see him. This would not be the last mention of Herod in this gospel, but I will make no further remarks of Herod specifically. After the allotted time for the mission of the disciples, they return, and as verse 10 says, the apostles had told him of all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew to a town called Bethsaida. In their mission, I'm sure they were very, very exhausted. And Mark 6.31, which accounts of the same story, even tells us just as much. They were exhausted. And after coming to Jesus, having taught and done what they were sent to do, Jesus desires to take them away to a desolate location, devoid of others, to rest and eat, pray. 
For there were so many in need of ministry and care that the apostles barely ate. Again, that's in Mark 6. The apostles were sent out in the midst of wolves to gather sheep to Jesus' fold and didn't have time to eat because it was not convenient enough at any point, any given point, to sit down and do so. If you're the apostles, I'm sure this wasn't exactly what you're expecting when the Messiah comes to you and says, Hey, participate in my kingdom rule. You're my follower now. After all, he was indeed supposed to come and reign in power and authority, and this he does. But for now, at least, in the context of this passage, it doesn't look like a king reigning, slaying his enemies, and as the Psalms say, making his enemies his footstool. However, it was the purpose of Yahweh that Jesus would be gentle and lowly among the peoples, offering salvation and rest from the weariness of sin. But he would still die and be raised. The story was still progressing, as it still is today. Serving God is not easy work. I don't think Scripture teaches that it particularly is such an easy thing. Relationship with God? Yeah. We can get there, but work for the Lord is going to be difficult. It seems like hard work. It looks like hard work. It is, just like anywhere else. But the difference between children of God working for the Lord and others working in vain for vain pleasures is the hope we have. You have received without paying, give without pay. Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. It is my conviction, and it seems to be the scriptural witness... That the servant of God ought to be in a consistent and perpetual heart posture of humility. We are to count others more significant than ourselves. Why and where do we get this example? It's Christ himself. This is the posture of Jesus' work of redemption. He took on the flesh of man while maintaining the full nature of God. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. It's Philippians 2, 6, and 7. And in unity with the Father and Holy Spirit, he humbled himself to obedience to the point of death on the cross. That's verse 8, Philippians chapter 2. He did all of that out of the grace and mercy in Yahweh, our triune God. And just as Jesus Christ humbled himself for the benefit of the lost, we, are, we also ought to, in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit, humble ourselves under the tall order of servitude to the kingdom of God for the sake of the glory of God and the not yet believer. To what end? To make the light of Christ known among the nations and to worship Yahweh our God. That's our life in Christ. So what does he do, Jesus? What does Jesus do? He attempts, as we see here in verse 10, to take the disciples away to a desolate place and rest. I'm not saying rest is bad, but he takes them away to rest, pray, eat, enjoy, fellowship, whatever they got into. But verse 11 shows us that there wasn't much time of rest for them. We read in Matthew 14, 1 through 12, another gospel account of the same story, that the crowd somehow learned that they were headed for Bethsaida by boat. And just before these crowds had heard, Jesus himself received news from John the Baptist's disciples that he had been beheaded And his severed head was literally served on a platter to Herod's wicked sister-in-law. That's Matthew 14, 1-12 for your personal reflection. 
Jesus heard of this and withdrew by himself, I'm sure, to pray. And in Mark 6.31, again, he instructed the disciples to do the same. Traveling to Bethsaida, just northeast of where the Jordan and the Sea of Galilee meet, here, hopefully, Jesus could mourn and the disciples could rest, pray, eat, and continue to debrief Jesus on all that they had experienced and the miracles they performed in his name to the glory of God. Jesus and his disciples come to shore and the people were waiting for him from different towns. A great multitude traveled on foot to meet Jesus and hear him speak. In verse 11, Jesus welcomed them and spoke to them the kingdom of God and he cured those who had need of healing. Mark 6.34 says that Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. With compassion, he saw all gathered. And even though he never got a chance to mourn the death of his cousin, John the Baptist, his fellow Israelite, who had so longed to see this day, he never got to sit down, rest, and be alone. And yet, with compassion, he looks on the crowd and instantly sees the importance and severity of the situation. These people gathered before me today have no shepherd. They wander aimlessly, and by God's grace, they are a captive audience to the Word of God, spoken by the Word became flesh, Jesus, the Good Shepherd. Verses 12 through 15. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. So the day is coming to a close. Again, the disciples are tired from their hard work for the Lord. And this crowd comes, and Jesus does exactly what he said he would do. Note that. He proclaims and he cures. He said he would do that in Luke 4.18 and following, and he does so right here. He's faithful to his word. The crowd sought them out and came from far away just to hear the words of Jesus and be healed. Jesus, compassion. The disciples, on the other hand, are stuck on the finite, the temporal. How are we going to do this? We can't provide for 5,000 plus. Jesus, no. Send them away so they can lodge and eat. We don't have the resources for this. I have a few, few thoughts and questions on this. How often do we look across the spiritual barrenness of our families, our churches, our nations, our friendships, and wonder why it is such a way? I take a backlog into my brain and I chew on how often I look at the seemingly immovable object before me and wonder what my response is. And what is your response? 5,000 men are here before Jesus and many more women and children accompanied these men, as said in other gospel accounts. Jesus' response is compassion. According to the power of God, he has perspective and understanding. The disciples, however, 
still with power from God, but they are not God. Jesus is. But they are granted power by God, and not only that, but God is right next to them. And Yahweh, the Lord, does not change, right? They know the scriptures. They can look back and see God provide manna in the wilderness, do many other miracles before the Israelites' eyes, and know that this God can overcome any obstacle, but yet they don't even ask him. Simon, he's right next to you. Philip, right next to you. John, he's next to you. We want to say that out loud. We want to think that. I thought that. And Jesus said to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Luke 8, 10. Now I'm not trying to make it seem like the disciples were imbeciles or idiots for acting as they did. I'm not even trying to make it so different from the other egregious acts that they perform. I'm not categorizing it as something special. I'm trying to show that this is common. It's very common for the servant of God to get off task. Their perspective to be misguided. Off the shepherd. The disciples are not exempt from that behavior. And neither are you. You are not exempt from that same behavior. No one is. Again, I'll ask, how often do we look across the spiritual barrenness of our families, friendships, nations, churches, workplaces, whatever... And wonder why it's such a way, all the while we hold the keys. We know and hold the message that bursts bonds, shatters strongholds, and we don't speak it. We have the ear of the sovereign, almighty Lord of the universe. Why don't we, with confidence in Christ, strive to fill it? though we never could. We don't merely touch the fringe of the garment of Christ. We are indwelled with the very same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, if we are in Christ. We are utterly and completely without excuse before Yahweh our God. He has supplied us with every resource, mechanism, and power to work sufficiently for him, but here's the kicker. Will you take up and read? Will you bow the knee before God in prayer? Will you submit yourself to Christ? Jesus says, You feed them. And circling back, Verse 12 tells us that after Jesus begins to speak to the people about the kingdom of God and healing those who needed it, the disciples tell Jesus that the day is beginning to wear away. And we are out in a desolate place, a wilderness, a desert, where there is no food, no water. They have nothing but a few loaves and fish. Send them out into the villages and countryside so that they can find lodging and eat. Jesus in John 6, verses 5 and 6, same story as in Luke 9 here. He's not silly. He's not an imbecile. But he tests them. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test them. And you might be thinking, man, how insensitive to ask a bunch of tired, poor, 
starving men in a desert wilderness. Hey, guys, where are we going to get some bread for these 5,000? That's what Jesus did. We have to understand that Jesus knows his disciples. He knows humanity. He knows you and I very well. You can have the food being Jesus, the bread of life, right in front of you, before your very eyes, and neglect him and choose your false kingdom. The question that should be asked when facing this sort of perplexity or turmoil, whatever you want to call it, the question that should be asked, what is Jesus going to do about this? What is God going to do about this? Ask and watch with expectation. In our passage, the disciples say, send the crowd away. Right? We've got 5,000 men alone. Again, that's not counting the women and children. Not only traveling and pursuing Jesus on foot, which would be tiring, but sitting through the whole day, listening to his teaching and waiting to be healed in the heat of the day. These people could be starving, thirsty, whatever, about to pass out. They need something. They need help. But the disciples look in the wrong place. It was God who in Israel's history provided manna, as I said. Jesus, who is the bread that gives life, comes from the Father in heaven, and here he is before them. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus says, if you are my disciple, you will feed the hungry, you will clothe the naked, and give shelter to the homeless. This is baseline for the disciple of Jesus. But our sin and our flesh kick against Jesus, providing life through his disciples. And they respond, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. How are we to provide for these people unless we go out and buy for them? Jesus offers up no rebuke, seemingly, at their failure of his test. And he instructs them in verse 14 to section off 50 people in a group. And they did so, and they all sat down. And he took the loaves and the fish, and he looked up to heaven, where his Father is enthroned. And he said a blessing over the loaves and fish. The pieces that were provided by the triune God were set before the people, and all ate and were satisfied. And not only that, but there was much left over, 12 baskets full. They were all satisfied by the bread that came from heaven, as every disciple of Jesus from the time of his death and resurrection to eternity will be satisfied in Jesus. And in complete conviction of the truth, with perspective and understanding, knowing what needs to be done, Jesus works a miracle and will always continue to do so. Jesus, despite unbelief, gets it done. Before we continue on in the passage, I have another question. Why in biblical history past were miracles done? Well, in short, I believe it was to show the immeasurable power and grace of God. That's very abstract and theoretical. But taking that to where the rubber meets the road... Miracles do many things for the kingdom of God, for God's people, and for those who reject Jesus every day. 
But why miracles? And why, in this particular context, were miracles done by Jesus? Well, because he is God with the power to do so, and miracles put that pen to paper. But why miracles for everyone? Why do others benefit? Because God is gracious. Jesus oftentimes, before he performs a miracle, has compassion and then moves forward with the provision of the miracle. Often I'm asked myself on the campus, anywhere, do I believe in miracles today? And in preaching this sermon, obviously I believe miracles happened at some point or you should drag me down from this pulpit. So do I believe in miracles today and should you even? And I have one question in response to that question and it is, is God still compassionate? Does he still look down from heaven on the children of man, see the sickness, the disease, the lack of food, the lack of shelter, the lack of love, the lack of salvation, and work his will, his purposes, and his pleasures today? Yes. God is sovereign, and he does as he pleases. And I do believe that it pleases God to see sinners saved today. That's a work of the Holy Spirit and a miracle in its own right. And I believe that he desires to see people healed and works to heal today. And he does it even if we don't seek it or pray for it. Because he's just that good. Jesus gets it done. We want to be rational. We want to make sense of the world. We want to know how Jesus could have possibly performed this miracle. We want all the answers. We think. The answers are there. But will we humble ourselves to them? Will we, will we serve a Lord who says you want to live? Die. Deny yourself. You want to see me for eternity? If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. How did this miracle come to be? Only through the most rational and perfect Means Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God in the flesh, dwelling with us. But will you believe Him? Will you trust Him? Will you submit to Him? And taking the five loaves and the two fish, He looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. I'll say a few things on this passage, and I'll offer up my closing remarks. Jesus looks up to heaven and blesses the loaves and fish, and upon this benediction, a miraculous event occurs in which 5,000 plus individuals could be fed, each to their own satisfaction, and some were left over and nothing was wasted. When God provides in the wilderness, I can think of two things this encourages in my own soul. First being that there is no obstacle for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a theme throughout Scripture that will one day find its completion in full order, just as God intended it to have. From the beginning and before the beginning of the world, God intended to create. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God. 
He being Yahweh, the God that is eternal, the God that was and is and is to come, no beginning, no middles, no futures. He exists outside of time, period. Within the creation narrative, there is a pinnacle, a high point, an ornament, humanity, where God will interact with something, with a conscience. Genesis chapter 1 Verses 26 through 31. The one and only created in the very image of the creator. Not the creator, but, cre- but created after his likeness. Again, not the creator. This creature, Adam, and subsequent to him, Eve, was then placed in the Garden of Eden. A dwelling of man and the Most High, and he was called to tend to it. Brothers and sisters, open up your eyes and see what our God Yahweh calls very good. Again, verse 31. Out of Eden flowed rivers. Inside Eden were plants and trees that were pleasant to the eyes and good for food. But one tree, good and ordained by God to exist, was in their midst. This tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was near Adam and Eve. And God laid down a command before Adam and said, without stuttering, without shadow, with clear lines not to be crossed, do not eat of this tree or you will die. All of this, this is the kingdom of God. God has created a place for creation to dwell and cultivate. He planted a garden for Adam and Eve to tend to. He calls them to dominion over that which was in their midst, and to keep and cherish and dwell in harmony and sanctity. A people made by God for God. A people made to glorify Him. This is the kingdom of God. What comes next, still completely known by God, still under His kingdom, under His rule, the serpent enters the picture. Chapter 3, verse 1. A crafty beast... A liar from the beginning, as Jesus said in John 8, 44, twists the word of God, and Adam failing to uphold his headship and representation for all his posterity, all his descendants, all of his children, transgressed God's good command. The kingdom of God, the perfect harmony, the blessed union of the creature and creator dashed at the hands of an indifferent free agent, Adam. All the world would soon know pain in childbirth, sweat and toil and work, all for nothing and vanity. Death to follow every human, estrangement from the Creator, disunity between each human, the fall. Seemingly, the kingdom of God has been thwarted, right? Is all hope lost? No. Genesis 3.15, Yahweh says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What shall we say of the kingdom of God now? It will be restored. Throughout the history of God's people, Israel, mediators of covenants have arisen. Sacrifices are made to atone for sin, but the priests that offer those sacrifices... They sin as a result of Adam's sin nature contaminating them. Judges are given to the people to serve and curb the sin that so easily entangles, but the judges cannot save. Kings are given to the people, but the kings are selfish and greedy and love their power rather than God. 
Prophets are given to the kings to drive their hearts to God and ward off sin, but sin still persists and the serpent still seems to clutch. The kingdom of God seemingly continues to fall at the might of sin and the serpent's seed, but God will not give up on his kingdom. In the Old Testament, a Messiah is predicted, an anointed servant of God who will not depart from the law, who will not sin, who will redeem to the uttermost. But he must live in this flesh perfectly. He must die a gruesome death. And he must rise from the, from the death. Jesus, the Savior, when all others could not restore the kingdom of God and the relationship between God and man, Jesus will get it done. God will get it done. Jesus is the better sacrifice. Jesus is the better priest. Jesus is the better king the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He sits above all rule and authority. God in the flesh, truly man, truly God. For what? For the kingdom of God to reach its fullness. Here he sits before a great multitude of men and women proclaiming the kingdom of God and bringing cures by the power of the Spirit and the restorative power of God to the sick, lowly, and destitute. So in thinking of the provision of God in the wilderness, what encourages my soul first is that no obstacle overcomes God. And second, the God that no obstacle can overcome loves me. And he loves you. He has compassion on me. He has compassion on you. Before I was in his fold, he saw, he looked, he knew I was shepherdless. He knew I was harassed and helpless. He knew you were harassed and helpless. And he picked us up as dismembered, dead corpses. And he gives us eyes, ears, hands, and feet to hear the word of God, to see his kingdom progress, to bow before him and worship him and live for his kingdom. In closing, I want to say that there is much work yet to be done in this present evil age. As we will continue to see in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus always draws away to pray. Why? Because he loves his Father. And he has perspective. In the context of Luke 9, the apostles knew there were forces at work that wanted them dead, imprisoned, or failing. But they didn't have yet the passage that we have today to look on, where we can gain perspective. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do we realize that we're in a real fight with a kingdom that is advancing? Jesus said, The gates of hell will not prevail against his kingdom. He knew we were in a very real fight. Jesus did, so he prayed. The apostles did. Paul did. James did. Do you? Again, we are utterly and completely without excuse before Yahweh our God. He has supplied us with every resource, mechanism, and power to sufficiently work heartily for him. But again, will you take up and read? Will you bow in prayer? Will you submit to Christ? And don't misunderstand me. 
Jesus loves you. He will sanctify you. He will take you into glory. And He wants you to be mindful of your limitations, but not to bow to them. We're mindful of them, to ask Him to overcome them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that he knows the discipline that his body needs. And he doesn't want to overcome it so he can look awesome and look perfect for everybody to say, Oh, look at Paul! He says, No, I want to discipline my body and overcome my limitations so I can serve Christ. Weakness is exactly where we want to be because that's where God's strength is shown. In Luke today, we saw the weakness of the apostles and the power of Jesus to overcome that weakness. The final question I have for you is, will you learn from the apostles' failure? Will you acknowledge the weaknesses and seemingly impossible tasks that are set before you and instead of shoo away the issue, run to Jesus and ask Him to overcome your weakness? And I pray you do today, beloved. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your grace and mercy. And we thank you, God, that we can gather today freely and worship you. I pray that you would impact our hearts, draw us closer to you in fellowship. Continue to supply us with every need and be with us, most importantly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.